It is my great joy to minister to you once again the Word of God, and I would invite you to take the infallible record and turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. Matthew 27, and this morning's text is verses 45 through 53. Follow along, beginning in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Recently, I was watching a news program and they had a political pundit being interviewed and he was mocking the moral positions of most Bible-believing Christians. Of course, this is nothing new. We see this all of the time. And paraphrasing what he said, he basically put it this way, that it was inconceivable to him that there are still people that believe that there is only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus. That it is inconceivable to him that there are people that actually believe that the Bible was written by God himself, and that Jesus was really God, and that he died on the cross for everyone's sin because we're really that bad. And it is inconceivable to think that he was really literally raised from the dead. And worst of all, that he's going to come again. It's inconceivable that people actually believe these things. And then he closed his little rant by saying, of course, it wasn't too long ago when men thought the world was flat. And they also used to bleed people to fight disease. Well, of course, this is the expected mindset of the unregenerate, those who see the Word of God and its foolishness to them. And as Christians, we shudder at the unregenerate's heart, those who have been deceived by the hardness of their heart, and those who find great pleasure in their ignorance and sin. And when we hear such things, we tend to shudder at the blasphemy, knowing that if they could really comprehend the dreadful state that they are in, that if they could for one moment grasp 
the wrath of God that abides upon them. That if for just just one minute they had even the slightest understanding of their true condition before a holy God, then the horrors of the hell that awaits them would drive them to their knees in humble repentance. But unfortunately, many times when we consider the things of Christ, even as Christians, I find that there is a staggering ignorance. And especially concerning those things surrounding the cross, the crucifixion of Christ. Of course, many of us saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ. Millions of people have watched that. And if you watch that movie, you will once again see a profound distortion of what Christianity is really all about and what really happened on the cross. You can watch that film and there's no understanding by anyone of the message of Acts 4.12 that there is salvation in no one else and there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You'll not see that in that movie. There's no understanding of why only a man that is fully God and fully human without a sin nature could satisfy the wrath of God. No understanding that only Jesus was the one that could give his life as a ransom for many. No understanding how his righteousness must be imputed to the sinner in order for us to be reconciled to God. No understanding that on the cross of Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself the curse of divine justice, which should have been ours. No understanding of 1 Peter 3.18, where we read that he died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. There's no understanding of the depths of sinfulness. Therefore, people are not amazed at the divine provision of the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But rather than that, when they look at that movie or things like it, but specifically that movie, you hear them say, well, this is all about the power of the human spirit. When Jesus died on a cross, this helps us understand man's potential for love and sacrifice for fellow man. Christ's death on the cross helps us understand our need to maintain freedom of religion and put down the tyranny of religious bigotry. Or as the professor of theology at Vanderbilt University, John Thadamonel says, quote, Jesus is a model of nonviolent resistance and the cross, a symbol of dying to self. Or, as the director of the film, Mel Gibson, described in terms of his rationale for doing the movie, he said, and I quote, I went to the wounds of Christ to cure my wounds. My wounds were healed by his wounds. And he went on to say that I had to tell the story of those wounds. Well, dear friends, might I say to you that the gospel of Jesus Christ and what Christ did on the cross has nothing to do with curing personal wounds. The gospel of Christ has nothing to do with boosting our self-esteem. 
The Lord Jesus Christ never preached a message on healing our memories or overcoming addictions or somehow having a better marriage or rising above personal pain or conquering depression or personal disillusionment or how to be more successful. He came to call sinners to repentance that by faith in him, we might be reconciled to a holy God. That is the gospel. In fact, the gospel of Christ is not about this life, but about the next. The crucifixion of Christ is all about reconciling sinful man to a holy God. And we read in 1 Peter 2.24 that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Indeed, he bore the wrath of God in our place to satisfy divine justice. But often, even as believers... I find that we have a shallow understanding of what really happened at the cross. We might have some familiarity with the events of the cross, but really no understanding of their significance. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning, I would have us examine six miraculous messages revealing the might and malice of the cross. This morning we will look at six supernatural events That manifests the infinite power of the Almighty and his infinite hatred of sin. All of which, by the way, really reveal the purposes in the crucifixion of Christ. And also provide a preview of impending judgment on all who disregard what happened there. The first miraculous message of his might and malice is seen in the darkness that fell upon the earth. Notice in verse 45, now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Now, the sixth hour would have been 12 o'clock midday. He was he was crucified beginning at 9 a.m. And here we see that the light of the world was symbolically extinguished to a world that prefers darkness over light. It fell over the land. The land, by the way, can also be translated earth. We, we don't know for sure the full scope of the darkness from this text. It could have been regional. It could have been worldwide. Frankly, it makes little difference. God can do both. But Luke, interestingly enough, describes the darkness with the word eklepo. We get our word eclipse from that. And that word literally in the Greek means to fail utterly or to put it this way, the lights of heaven were completely turned out. Now, we know that this was not a lunar eclipse, as some might want us to believe. Passover was celebrated at the time of the full moon, and that would have been the time when the sun would have been in the very opposite direction. Interesting as well as the fact that there are several extra-biblical reports that comment on the eerie darkness of that day, including one even from Pilate sent to Tiberius, remarking on the widespread darkness of those three hours between 12 o'clock and 3. But, dear friends, what we do know is that during that time, the darkness of divine judgment fell upon the Son of Righteousness. And and I cannot help but believe that this darkness covered the whole earth as a preview of yet another period of judgment that will come over the whole world someday. 
The Lord Jesus commented on that time in Matthew 24:29. In fact, he had commented on it just a few days prior to this time of darkness, that time of catastrophic judgment during Daniel's 70th week, just prior to his second coming, where we read that immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers will be shaken. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 13 verses 9 through 10 speaks of this time as well. A time that could be literally a few years from now. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. If you, if you look at the prophets Joel, Amos, Zephaniah, you will hear the same thing describing this season of judgment. They will speak of a day of darkness and gloom, of wrath and destruction, of trouble and distress, a day of clouds and thick darkness. In fact, Scripture repeatedly uses darkness as a mark of divine judgment. We know, according to 2 Peter 2.4, that fallen angels have been committed to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And according to Jude 6, they are currently kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And Jesus, even speaking of man's sinful nature, said in Matthew 6.23, If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! And of course, those who prefer darkness rather than light will have their way for eternity unless they repent. Because Jesus has said in Matthew 8.12 that the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So God's first miraculous message during the crucifixion of His Son demonstrated the infinite might of his judgment and the immeasurable malice that he has towards sin by cloaking the world with darkness. All, of course, being a preview of that day yet future that will come upon all who refuse his gift of forgiveness. The second message of his might and malice can be seen in the alienation of the father. Notice in verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now friends, I confess here, I speak of a matter infinitely beyond my ability to comprehend. Here the soul of this man of sorrows collapses under the weight of the infinite justice of God. The one who had no sin of his own is now being immersed in a vast ocean of it. Indeed, the Lord who has now had our iniquity laid upon him. As I think about this, we can only imagine 
the joy of fellowship that the Lord had up to this very moment. Holy fellowship. Can you imagine that? Fellowship that is utterly separated from sin. Utterly bereft of its ravages. And although we as believers hate sin and its, its offense to God, however, the way we perceive sin is, is frankly infinitesimal when compared to God's hatred of it. And now this holy union is shattered. This holy union. Um, here the darkness of the day bears witness to the darkness of, of our Lord's Spirit. And the heart-rending wail of our Lord reveals the ultimate extremity of anguish, the very bottom of the abyss of sorrow. Spurgeon comments on this time this way, and I quote, Our Lord was then in the darkest part of His way. He had trodden the wine press now for hours, and the work was almost finished. He had reached the culminating point of His anguish, This is his dolorous lament from the lowest pit of misery. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I do not think that the records of time or even of eternity contain a sentence more full of anguish. Here the wormwood and the gall and all the other bitternesses are outdone. Here you may look as into a vast abyss. And though you strain your eyes and gaze till sight fails you, yet you perceive no bottom. It is measureless, unfathomable, inconceivable. This anguish of the Savior on your behalf and mine is no more to be measured and weighed than the sin which needed it or the love which endured it. We will adore where we cannot comprehend. End quote. And as I lived with this passage, I began to realize that All of the agonies of torture that he had experienced up to this point had been borne in silence. The beatings, the the ridicules, the the scourging, the, the crown of thorns beaten upon his skull, the nails in his wrists and in his feet. But dear friends, the pain of divine desertion was a pain too great to bear. And so here from the depths of his tormented soul, his heart now literally breaking in unendurable grief, we hear his voice penetrating the darkness, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Notice he did not say, Peter, why did you forsake me? Judas, why did you forsake me? Disciples, why have you forsaken me? Israel, why have you forsaken me? Because, dear friends, no human abandonment can compare with the divine abandonment, with the desertion of the Father Himself. And frankly, that's an experience we will never have to bear. But now as our Redeemer bears the curse of the law in our stead. The holy judge who cannot look upon sin must now turn his back on the one who must be made to bear it. 
because as Habakkuk 1.13 says, thine eyes are too pure to approve evil and thou canst not look on wickedness with favor. And friends, while the love of the father, and you must understand this, while the love of the father for the son never waned, the expiation of sin required that sweet communion to be withdrawn for his back to be turned upon the one who was bearing the sin. And so the substitute for the guilty must now drink the cup of divine wrath to the very dregs. And there on that tree, the one who came to give his life a ransom for many, as he said in Matthew 20, 28, not only bore our sin, but he literally became our sin. Became sin on our behalf, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And in Galatians 3.13, he became a curse for us. Think of this, dear friends. He takes upon himself our sin and we receive his righteousness. Inconceivable. And now in the furnace of divine wrath, when... The heat is at its hottest. The constant comfort of divine fellowship is broken. And thus we hear the Savior's lugubrious lament as he cries out, quoting Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe that only those who have known great love can even begin to appreciate such deprivation. The infinite joy of of the Lord's eternal fellowship in the triune Godhead is beyond our ability to even comprehend. And certainly our current state of unredeemed flesh only allows us a trifling sample of of such intimacy with with our God and, and, and with others. But yet even that is an experience that that exceeds all others. What joy there is in worship. What joy there is in fellowship. And yet this you can multiply this by an infinite number and still not be able to calculate the joy and fellowship within the triune Godhead. I have known over the years many a mate who has soon departed after their loved one dies. The enormous vacuum left by their soulmate becomes more than they can stand, and many die of a broken heart. Now, I cannot imagine my life apart from my precious wife. But as precious as that is, I cannot fathom my life apart from the one who created my life and sustains me and sustains you. I cannot imagine that. I cannot imagine living apart from having the Spirit of God and frankly the triune Godhead living within me. It's like oxygen in the air we breathe. He is always there. He is always there to comfort. He is always there to guide. But He was withdrawn from the Lord upon the cross I can echo, and so can you, Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not what? I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. But this was not the case for the Lord. Psalm 139, the psalmist speaks of our experience when he says, Where can I go from thy spirit or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me and thy right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. (laughs) Even the darkness is not dark to thee and the night is as bright as the day for darkness and light are alike to thee. Oh, but dear friends, the darkness of the father's desertion left our Lord hanging upon that tree to suffer all alone. We can rejoice, can't we, that He has promised that He will never leave us nor forsake us. Because of God's great love, none of us will ever know the experience of divine abandonment. And I might also add that I believe this is a prelude to hell. One of the greatest torments of hell will be the eternal separation and isolation from the unappreciated benefits of God's blessing. You know, even the lost experience His presence in common grace. The rain falls on the just and it falls on the unjust. Even the rankest sinner enjoys the spillover of divine blessing that He pours out upon the righteous. You see that even in this country. But in hell, this will not be the case. And I think of the joy of knowing that the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. And certainly we all have experiences that we can share where in the midst of our greatest trial, the Lord was there. And therefore, I think, you know, how could how, how could the Lord possibly have stood what he stood upon that cross? But. Even as the Lord joined Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Nebuchadnezzar's furnace, giving them supernatural comfort and sustaining grace, even so, down through history, dying saints describe the peaceful joy that is theirs when God gently summons them into the realms of glory. He is always there, especially in the midst of the greatest trial, when the torch has been lit. To those at the stake, they describe the joy of the Lord in the midst of the flames. He will never leave us alone in our hour of great trial, but not so when Jesus hung upon the tree. But again, I speak of things that I cannot fathom. I have no point of reference to compare to the loss of a conscious presence Of the love of God in my life. So as Jesus cried out in desperation to his father. The wicked mockers continued to taunt him saying in verse 47. This man is calling for Elijah. And in verse 49. But the rest of them said. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Now think about this. Even in the mysterious darkness. Of this three hour period. When the torches had to be lit. 
even the darkness did not mitigate their blasphemies. Nor will it mitigate their blasphemies in the eternity of hell. John's gospel indicates that it was at this time, according to John 19:28, that Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. And then Matthew states here in verse 48, immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. I find, found it touching what John Trapp, the 17th century Puritan, said with regard to this. And I quote, sorrow is dry, we say. This man of sorrows, more to fulfill the scriptures than for his own satisfaction, though extreme dry, no doubt, for now was the paschal lamb roasting in the fire of his father's wrath. He saith, I thirst and had vinegar to drink that we might drink of the water of life and be sweetly inebriated in that torrent of pleasure that runs at God's right hand forevermore. End quote. The sour wine that is mentioned here was an ancient thirst quencher. It would have been something tantamount to our Gatorade, only certainly not that tasty. It was a highly diluted wine. And here we read that it was put upon a sponge and a reed. And the reed, by the way, according to John's gospel, was a hyssop branch. And the maximum branch length of a hyssop branch would have been about 18 inches. And this would help us understand that Jesus was not far above the ground, maybe a couple of feet for someone to reach up with their hand and an 18 inch reed to give him a drink. So, my friends, here again, we see the might and the malice of the cross. We see the might of the Savior's love and the malice of the Father's wrath. The third miraculous message can be seen in the surrender of the Savior's spirit in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now, here you must understand that the miraculous nature of this event is cloaked within the language of the phrase yielded up. This term in the original language means to deliberately let something go or to deliberately, with conscious choice, send something away. You see, you must understand that on the cross of Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ did not commit suicide. Nor did his physical condition steadily deteriorate until finally he was exhausted and he died. You see, the stamina and recuperative powers of unfallen humanness could have sustained life had he chosen to go on living. But rather, the text says that he yielded up his spirit. It was an act of his sovereign will. In fact, just prior to this, in John 19.30, it is recorded that he cried out from the cross. Note, he did not faintly murmur. He cried out from the cross. And Luke 23.46 adds that he said, It is finished, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. 
And here again, we witness the fulfillment of Jesus' words in John 10, 18, when he said, I lay down my life on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. So here we behold the might of our sovereign Savior who voluntarily surrendered his spirit. And we also see again the malice of two competing kingdoms that hate each other. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Again, no human being could have taken his life from him. Only God could yield it up. And at that moment, a fourth miraculous message was sent from a holy God to a sinful man. Again, a message of might for those who believe and malice for those who refuse. And that is in the rending of the veil. Verse 51, it says that, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Imagine the scene, all of the worshipers in the temple, and suddenly the beautiful curtain that separated sinful man from the holy of holies is dramatically ripped asunder from top to bottom. You must understand that now no longer would access into the presence of God be limited to the high priest on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement. But now God will meet with every man who enters into his presence by the blood of Christ. The barrier of sin was removed by the one who bore it. No longer is there a need for a yearly sacrifice. It is finished. No human hands could have torn away that spiritual covering. For no one could ever stand in the presence of God who is a consuming fire based upon his own initiative. As in the days of Sinai, when he was first revealed through the law, that time when man had to stand far back, as you will recall, they had to put a fence around it. They couldn't even touch the fence. They couldn't get near the mount. No longer must we stand afar off from the one who would be our judge. For now we have been reconciled And he has become not our judge, but our father. These are the great truths of the gospel, dear friends. And I rejoice that no longer is our God hidden from our eyes in the secret darkness of the holy of holies. The dividing veil has been torn asunder. And now we can experience what Jesus said. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. John MacArthur perfectly and succinctly summarized the significance of this miracle when he said, and I quote, When Christ died, the old covenant was abrogated and the new inaugurated. And friends, because of this, we we don't need a priest now to be our mediator. There is only one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus. I don't have to go through someone else to have access to God. Indicative of the heresies of Roman Catholicism. In fact, according to Hebrews 4.16, I can rejoice with this text. It says, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Oh, child of God, what fellowship What fellowship is ours? We have been reconciled to God. 
because of his malice of sin, we shall see God. But while the worshipers in the temple stood back, as the veil exposed them to the presence of God, yet another miraculous message shook the earth and literally did so. Fifthly, we see the miraculous message of the quaking of the earth in verse 51. It says, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Here the Almighty Creator shakes the earth in an act of divine judgment. And once again, a preview of an even greater judgment that will someday come. Here, God warns sinners of a terror that far exceeds that earthquake and even the earthquake that he wrought upon Sinai. And the writer of Hebrews describes that occasion in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 26. His voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Friends, what he is saying here is that he once shook the earth at Mount Sinai when he appeared to Moses. In fact, if you read the text, you will read that the whole mountain quaked violently. Exodus 19. But when he returns to earth the next time in final judgment, he is going to not only shake the earth, but the entire universe. In fact, just prior to the Lord's return, the Holy Spirit of God revealed to John what will happen in the cataclysmic judgments of that day. And in Revelation 6.13, for example, we read that the stars of the sky fell to the earth. This is what John saw in terms of what will happen someday. It goes on to say that as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind, the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and every island were moved out of their places. And of course, just days earlier, the Lord said in Matthew 24, 29, speaking of that day, that the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Dear friends, please understand, a day is coming when the suffering and the shame of the Savior will become the suffering and the shame of sinners. All who have rejected Him and there will be no solid ground upon which to stand, neither physically nor spiritually. For those who have rejected Christ, the might, the Almighty that caused that earthquake will be unleashed upon all who refuse to believe. And I can't help but allow my heart to overflow with the doxology and say, how blessed is the man whose God is the Lord. We, we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And because of this, we can sing the great hymns of the faith with absolute confidence. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is what? All other ground is sinking sand. And I think of that great hymn, John Rippon's lyrics, of the 18th century, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord. 
is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say that to you he have said to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed. For I am thy God and will give thee aid and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee and cause thee to stand but upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Well, finally, we see one last miraculous message of might and malice at the cross. We see this in, sixthly, the bodily resurrection of selected saints. Now, folks, hear my heart pounds within my breast with joyful anticipation. Verses 52 through 53, we read that the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs. By the way, you should put a period there. That's the best translation. And then there's a new sentence here, a new complete thought. After his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. You see, friends, the Lord Jesus was, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 20, the first fruits of those who were asleep, the, the first of the resurrection harvest. And, of course, his resurrection guarantees ours. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now, this, this was an amazing event. You see, the spirits of selected Old Covenant saints, those who had placed their faith in God's saving grace before the cross, are, are now united to a glorified body. They have been living with God in glory, in spirit form. Now they're given a glorified body. Men and women who have been in the presence of the Lord for maybe hundreds of years now have a resurrected body and they're sent back to earth. What an amazing testimony to the saving power of what happened there on the cross. Now, we're not told what happened, what they did. They, they probably appeared to other saints and enjoyed a brief period of, of fellowship with them, and then they quickly ascended back into glory. But what a magnificent encouragement that must have been to the beleaguered saints in Jerusalem, and the word would spread everywhere, here they are mourning the loss of their Savior. They're confused, they're frightenedly, and suddenly, now again, this is just conjecture, but it had to have been something like this. Suddenly, someone walks through the walls and says, Shalom, my name is Miriam. I was a friend of Isaiah, and I know you, and she would mention their names because now she would have the wisdom that God would grant a glorified body. And she would probably say something like, I, I, I've been in glory all these years. It's years to you. It's nothing to me. But I want you to know that all that Jesus has, has said and all that he has done is true. Be of good cheer. Do not be afraid. Christ has purchased your redemption. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The victory is yours. It is ours. Rejoice in the Lord. And then maybe some other people would come into the room and they would introduce themselves. Can you imagine that scene? I don't know. Maybe they picked a few people up with one finger. I don't know what all they did. But the point is, the other saints knew what was going on. 
And this should be great encouragement to us. Oh, child of God, what a redeemer we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a redeemer. What hope is ours because of the might of his saving grace and his malice towards sin. And in light of these six miraculous messages that reveal the height of his love by the depth of his suffering, I I have to ask you in closing this morning, what manner of people should we be? I mean, when we ponder the price of our ransom, when we consider the cost to redeem us from the curse of the law, How can we harbor sin in our heart? How can we somehow pander and pamper that accursed thing that caused such agony to our Savior upon the tree? How can we let it entertain us on our television sets? How can we savor it in our mouths and in our hearts? How can we possibly allow it to satisfy our lusts and rule our emotions and deceive and harden our hearts and rob us of blessing? I ask you, why would you befriend a murderer that killed and tortured your child? Of course not. That's insanity. And yet how we love to pander our sins. Because of His infinite love, dear friends, we have an infinite obligation. The Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, summarized that so perfectly in Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. He said, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. My friends, this must be the passion of our hearts, all of us who know and love Christ. And finally, for those of you within the sound of my voice who secretly laugh at all of this, You who still mock the Savior in the darkness. For you, the tender Savior will be a consuming fire. A holy judge will one day pour out his wrath upon you unless you repent. Unless you place your faith in the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and be reconciled to God. And I plead with you to flee into the mighty arms of the Savior while there is still time. Lest you someday be consumed by the fierce malice of His wrath. His grace awaits you. May God have mercy on your soul. Let's pray. Father, as we pensively reflect upon what happened on the cross, we are humbled, we are frankly silenced, but by the illuminating power of your Spirit, we grasp a little bit of what happened there, certainly enough to help us see the infinite obligation that we have 
to be a living sacrifice. Lord, I pray that by the power of Your Spirit, this will be the passion of our heart. Lord, may a lost and dying world see the transforming power of the gospel of grace in our lives. And may many be saved because of the power of Your Word that emanates through us. Thank You for meeting with us this day. We love You in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.